Well, I turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue making our way through 1 Corinthians. We're coming very close to the end here. As we're in chapter 16, we'll read this morning verses 5 through 12. This is the Lord's word as he gave to the Apostle Paul, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And here today talking about some of his future plans. And so let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word for being inspired by God. It is without error as it was given to Paul. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 5 through 12. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let us pray that he will bless that reading. Lord our God, we do indeed pray that you would bless the reading of your word, its exposition, and your hearing, or our hearing rather, that we would be enlightened by it, that we would take it to heart, and that we might become doers of it and not only hearers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Paul draws near to the end of a letter, He usually will offer a quick succession of some instructions for the the original audience, some teachings for which he does not give a lot of in-depth explanation. Uh, They most often don't need in-depth explanation. Uh, Either they're straightforward and simple, or the context of the letter has already provided the sufficient explanation for it. We saw last week some quick instructions about gathering the offering for the relief of the saints, for the relief of the Jerusalem church during a time of famine and poverty in that region. But before continuing with that list of quick instructions, Paul informs the Corinthian Christians of some of his plans for the coming months. From verse 5 through verse 12, we can glean some helpful counsel for ourselves. Number one, we see it's wise to make plans. We don't just fly by the seat of our pants as God's people. At least we ought not to. Secondly, though we know that it, it's a fact that we need to be flexible to adjust plans as circumstances change. You and I can't know the future and we don't know what kinds of obstacles to our initial plans might arise. And we need to be flexible to adjust plans. Now those are things that Anyone who has any modicum of intelligence in the world can figure out, especially after a little bit of bitter experience. But in particular, as we think about how 
Christians do this. We see third, when making plans, and this is a big distinction between anyone who is wise as the world would count wisdom and somebody who is wise unto God. When making plans, prioritize what seems most effective for the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. That should always be a priority for God's people. Fourth, we see, and this is something that anyone can discern after good experience, delegate work to trustworthy and qualified people. It's good for the church to do that as well as others. But then we see some other things that are in particular good for the church. Number five, respect those who labor for the kingdom. Number six, encourage others to use their gifts effectively for the kingdom. And then seventh, respect the decisions of others concerning how they believe they can be most effective. As long as they're not doing something that is counter to God's word, uh, then we have to respect that even if I think you should be doing something in Christ's service, maybe you have some other calling from the Lord, and I have to respect your sense of that calling. Uh, Again, we'll get into more details here. It it doesn't mean that I can't encourage you to think of other ways to serve the Lord. So in context here, we see we're extrapolating these things from plans that an apostle was making, and he was making these plans for the church. So, as I noted, some of these things are things that anybody with any modicum of intelligence can discern from how the world works. And this is helpful advice in lots of contexts. But our primary concern here is to consider how Christians in general and those in authority in the church in particular might go about making plans for the ministry that Christ has entrusted to us. And the first thing we see is it is wise to make plans. It is wise to make plans, not just, as I said, to fly by the seat of our pants, so to speak. We understand that God is sovereign, and we trust Him to be in control, but we're not fatalists who simply wait for things to fall on us from the sky. God sovereignly uses our actions and decisions for His good purposes. One of the things that we learn, and this is a lesson for another day, it has been a lesson on other days, uh, is that he uses even our sins sinlessly for his good purposes. But when we make plans, of course, we know that we have to be guided by God's word. So we don't plan, ought not to plan to sin. But God sovereignly uses our actions and decisions, and especially those that are in obedience to his word, for his good purposes. It's wise to make plans. That's not to say that all churches need to have the same plan. Not all churches need to be so-called program churches or have small groups or do street preaching. A grave mistake that many can make is they'll see that, well, my church was successful in doing A, B, and C, so your church has also to do A, B, and C. Churches most certainly should not be taking their cues from the secular business world, trying to entice people into their doors to attend worship with methods that businessmen would use to entice customers. The church is more 
an organism than an organization. It's both, but I think we really need to emphasize that the church is a body and is a family. These are organism kind of uh, words rather than simply an earthly type of organization. Not all congregations need a so-called mission statement or vision statement. I mean, Christ gives us the vision statement for the church in general in his great commission. But we don't all need to have, in other words, the same plan for evangelism, for example. Some might find street preaching effective in their community. Others find equipping and encouraging members to do more one-on-one evangelism with friends and family and others that they meet more effective. A church may see a period of time when it needs to concentrate on evangelizing the covenant children in their midst. What a blessing it is that even such a small congregation as this now has so many young covenant children in our midst. And I was just recently on the visitation committee to the Manhattan Church. And of course, we have a close relationship with them, so this isn't a surprise to any of you. But one of the things that the committee found was that uh, they're expecting very soon, to, with a few more births on the way, that they will soon have about 40% of their congregation or more than 40%, will be baptized and not communicant members of the church. Young children. They have a great opportunity for evangelizing these covenant children, and that will probably be a strong concentration of their outreach efforts, so to speak. It won't be outside the, the walls of the place they meet, so much as it will be there with the covenant families. Not every church needs to have the same programs for discipleship and so on. But every church needs some plan for how it will carry out the things that Christ has commanded. In verses 5 and 6, we see Paul making plans for carrying out the ministry that Christ has entrusted to him. He writes here again, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. So notice he's not declaring by the Holy Spirit this is a fact that God has revealed to me. Here's how things are going to come out. He says, maybe. These are the plans. He wrote 1 Corinthians, we know, from Ephesus in what's now modern-day Turkey. We know from Acts 18 and 19 that Paul spent about three to three and a half years in Ephesus. He now plans to leave that city to visit Macedonia and Achaia. That would be right in the middle of what we think of as Greece. He could, he could have sailed directly across the Aegean Sea to Corinth and then gone up the coast. That would have been an easy way to do it. Up the coast to Macedonia and visit The churches there, we know that churches in his day existed in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea at least, but as he says in verse 7, he doesn't want to have just a quick visit with the Corinthians on his way somewhere else, but rather he wants to have a longer stay. He wants to go get his business done in Macedonia, then come to Corinth and stay maybe even through the winter there. It's hard to sail in the winter time, and so 
it's better just to stay somewhere for the winter. And he's thinking maybe Corinth would be a great place that will give me plenty of time with them. And the point here is that we see that Christ's apostle is making plans. He's making plans for his upcoming visit to several congregations, and that includes the Corinthian church. It is wise to make plans. We should follow that example and make plans. But then we see also principle number two here, be flexible to adjust plans as circumstances change. Military historians and strategists have a saying that goes something like this, no plan of battle survives first contact with the enemy. If a general can't be flexible with his plans, he will lose because he, he has to adjust to changing circumstances as they actually encounter the enemy army. A good plan is a flexible plan, one that can be adjusted to meet circumstances the planner didn't expect or anticipate. Or maybe he did, and he said, or he was thinking, well, if this isn't working, then we'll go to this. We have plan A and plan B. That's, that's good to do. It's wise to be flexible when we make plans, to adjust our plans as circumstances change from what we thought they were when we made the plan in the first place. A good plan is a flexible plan. You'll notice how in verse 6, Paul said, it may be that I will remain. He's already saying, I have to be flexible with this. I have to know that God might have something else in mind. This is not a prophetic statement from the Lord. I'm not saying, thus says the Lord, I will spend the winter with you in Corinth. I'm saying, this is what I would intend right now, and we'll see what God lays in our path. In verse 7 he writes, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. There he's recognizing God's sovereignty over these things and that he, in making these plans, has not received any word from the Lord telling him what the specifics of the plans are to be. If the Lord permits, that's an important expression. In James Chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus' brother says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and make a profit. And then two verses later in verse 15, he says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. We don't know what God has in mind for us from one day to the next. We make our plans, we should be thinking, if the Lord wills, we'll do it this way. From Acts and from 2 Corinthians, we find that Paul actually did have to adjust these plans. He had to leave Ephesus sooner than planned because of a riot that was stirred up by idol makers who blamed Paul's preaching for their loss of business which was true, but they should have repented and trusted in Christ themselves and rejoiced that idolatry was coming to an end. That's in Acts 19. At the beginning of Acts 20, then, we read that that Paul did go, as he's talking about here, through Macedonia, stayed in Achaia for three months, so Corinth most likely was there for three months. Corinth is the chief city of Achaia. And then he returned to Macedonia. 2 Corinthians suggests that there was a brief visit which Paul made 
in sorrow, he says, before all of that. So as he says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. So it seems that he made a brief stop in Corinth after writing 1 Corinthians. And it was a sorrowful visit, in which he probably was carrying out some discipline that had been lacking in the church. And he then probably returned to Ephesus, and then that's when all of the things happened that drove him from the city. He went then to Macedonia, from where he wrote 2 Corinthians, and then he went back to Corinth for a few months. It's clear that Paul had to adjust the plans that he states here in 1 Corinthians 16. As we read earlier this morning, Proverbs 16, verse 9, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we plan our ways, and I think my steps are going to go in this direction, but the Lord might have a different plan and say, No, I'm going to make you turn to the left there, Daniel, instead of going that direction. As the Reformation Study Bible puts it, these verses make clear, these verses here in 1 Corinthians 16, these verses make clear that Paul wrote the letter from Ephesus and intended to visit Corinth by way of the northern land route around the Aegean Sea. Both Acts 20 verses 1 and 2 and 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13 indicate he carried out this plan. What Paul did not foresee at this time was the prior need to make a short and unpleasant visit to Corinth soon after writing 1 Corinthians. Be flexible to adjust plans as circumstances change. The third thing that we see here, and this is one that you're not going to discern from the world. You know, again, people wise as the, the world count such things can, can figure out that it's good to make plans and it's good to be able to adjust to those plans to circumstances you couldn't foresee. But here's something that really sets Christians apart. When making plans, prioritize what seems most effective for the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. Notice I put the word seems there. You and I, again, can't know the future. We don't know what is going to necessarily be the most effective. We have to look at God's word and look at the circumstances and figure out what seems the most effective. We're not going to be foolproof in that. One man or woman, though, cannot do all things. No one can be in more than one place at a given time. So we have to prioritize. Paul had to prioritize what seemed wisest and most advantageous for the kingdom at the time. Corinth could have used his presence, could have benefited from a visit. And in fact, he ended up having to make a quick visit and a sorrowful visit, it seems. But you know where else Paul's presence could have been helpful? Galatia and Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica, all the other churches that he had helped to found. But Paul saw the opportunity right in front of him there in Ephesus for great work to be done. And he didn't want to leave it. And in fact, what we see is that he ended up being so effective that the idol makers were angry that the work had been taken from them. Because people came to Ephesus. People would come to Ephesus to worship, especially Artemis, the Greek goddess. And this was as a... Usually, uh, Artemis was thought of as a, 
as a young huntress virgin goddess, but the way she was worshipped at Ephesus was as a mother goddess. This is a mother and fertility cult. People would come to Ephesus. One of the great wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. People would come there to worship this false goddess and engage in these fertility rites. And idol makers made a booming business off of these people coming to town to worship Artemis. And Paul and the other missionaries for Christ in the city were teaching these people to forsake idolatry instead. And they were so successful that the idol makers ran out of business and rioted because Paul caused such a loss of business for them. So Paul prioritized that. He saw that opportunity in front of him, and there was work to be done. He says in verses 8 and 9, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Notice he doesn't say, it's really easy for me here, and that's why I'm going to stay here. No, there's a lot of, lot of opposition, and so I need to stay here to deal with the opposition. Notice that he refers to the Old Testament liturgical calendar here. I don't think as an endorsement of keeping liturgical calendars, as that would contradict what he has to say in Colossians 2, but rather uh, he's simply using that as a convenient reference point. Like somebody might say, well, I'll see you. Uh, I want to stay here until Thanksgiving. and do that. It's just it's a reference point on the commonly held cultural calendar. Pentecost was 50 days from the Sabbath of Passover week. And so, uh, coming up on midsummer, basically, that's when Paul's saying he plans to leave Ephesus. But notice he intends to remain because of this great and effective door, he says, that has been opened to him. Uh, by that, he, he doesn't mean it's easier, as I said, to stay at Ephesus. He, he stays there because there are adversaries, too. But this is a, a great way for you and for me to discern what is it that's going to be the most effective for Christ's kingdom here? Well, where is God opening doors for opportunity? You know, we're living in a time right now of a pastor shortage in the RPCNA. There's no doubt that there are other opportunities for a pastor like me. I could go somewhere else. That's not a threat, by the way. I'm just saying that's a... <laughs> Uh, that's just a, a statement of, of how the situation is right now. But I see a great and effective door open here. Why would I look for open doors somewhere else when there's one right in front of me? And Paul's saying the same thing here. Look, I know that there are things I can be doing there in Corinth and elsewhere, but I've got this open door right in front of me. It would be silly for me not to step through it. This is what God is clearly wanting right now. He's prioritizing Ephesus because the ministry of the gospel is succeeding greatly there. He didn't want to drop the ball just as he was about to score, to use a modern sporting reference. Prioritize what seems most effective. Where is God clearly opening doors for you? Fourth, delegate work to trustworthy and qualified people. This also 
goes hand in hand with the fact that we need to prioritize things. No one of us can do everything. Because no one can do it all, we need to be able to trust other qualified individuals to share our burdens. Verse 10, and if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Paul couldn't be in Corinth. He saw the priority of staying in Ephesus as a higher priority at this point. Yet he intended to be of some service to Corinth, and he sent Timothy to come on his way back from a mission that Paul has sent him on already. And Timothy would do the work delegated to him by Paul. Churches who expect their pastors, for example, to do it all are really asking either for a pastor who doesn't make an adequate effort at the things that he should be concentrating on, like preaching and teaching and so on, or they're asking for a pastor who'll be burnt out really soon because he's trying to do everything. Paul delegates work, including a visit to Corinth, to Timothy, his right-hand man. That brings us then to our next point, number five, respect those who labor for the kingdom. Verse 11, therefore let no one despise him. He's talking about Timothy still here. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Timothy was relatively young, but he was doing important gospel work. It was appropriate that the Corinthian brethren would respect his office. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul writes to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Paul says this for one thing, as we see when he talks about being an example there to the believers in word and conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. He's saying to Timothy, don't give anyone an excuse to despise your youth. Rather, be an example to them. But it also teaches that we have to respect those who are called by God to church office and not look for excuses not to respect them. We must not dismiss them simply because, for example, they're younger. Something I've observed, which I believe we have to be really cautious, is confusing maturity with agrees with me. And so, well, when you're a little more mature, you'll understand. I know as a young pastor, I encountered that a few times, especially in my former denomination. People say, well, you know, that's these young pastors that believe the Bible, they're just just—they're—they're they're not mature. They don't have a more mature understanding. And I would say, well, but older people than you agree with me, so now, now where are we? It isn't about age. And so we have to be careful not to mistake agreeing with me for maturity either way around there. We should be like the Bereans who examined all things by scripture, certainly. And we must hold especially church officers accountable to be faithful to God's word. But there also should be a great respect accorded to those who dedicate themselves to faithful ministry. First Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So the baseline is to honor elders, 
And then to give double honor to those who do a good job at it. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So we see here, just as Paul commends Timothy to the Corinthians, respect those who labor for the kingdom. A sixth thing we see is encourage others to use their gifts effectively for the kingdom. In Acts 18, we're introduced to a Jewish Christian named Aquila. He was originally from Pontus, that would be on the south shore of the Black Sea, but he had been living in Rome. And in fact, his wife was probably a Roman. His wife Priscilla was most likely from the senatorial class in Rome. That's the highest level in society, socially speaking, in Roman society, unless you were in this era in the imperial family. Priscilla and Aquila had come to Corinth after the Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from the city of Rome uh, sometime in the 40s AD. And they met Paul in Corinth and accompanied him to Ephesus when he left there. When Paul moved on, they remained in Ephesus. And while there, they later met Apollos. Apollos was a young Jewish man who believed in Christ. He was from Alexandria in Egypt, and he was preaching the gospel. But he was getting a few details wrong. And so Quillet and Priscilla took him aside and showed him the things he was getting wrong. They didn't embarrass him in front of everybody else, but they took him aside. They helped him straighten out his doctrine, and he became a very effective preacher of the gospel. We find, in fact, that he had spent some time in Corinth, as we saw earlier in this letter, so that people were even dividing themselves into parties and factions and saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, well, I'm of Apollos. So he was a popular preacher at that point. And then he was back in Ephesus by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Paul indicates here he was encouraging Apollos to go back to Corinth to preach. That probably would have helped a lot with the factionalization if people are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. And Paul has said, no, you need not to be of Paul or Peter or Apollos, be of, be of Christ. And if Apollos, one of those other people that people are factualizing over, also shows up there and says the same thing, that's going to help out a lot. And in verse 12 we find here, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. He's probably talking about the brethren who brought this letter. So uh, Paul's probably meaning that he wanted Apollos to come with the people who brought the letter 1 Corinthians, to Corinth, but Apollos didn't come. Notice also that he begins the verse there with now concerning, and that's how he has begun answers to questions the Corinthians have asked in a letter. So it's likely that the Corinthians have actually asked, could, could Apollos come back and preach for us? And Paul has encouraged Apollos to do just that. He saw Apollos' gifts for the ministry of the word, and encouraged him to use those gifts. When you identify gifts that others have, encourage them to use those gifts for Christ's service. But number seven, respect the decisions of others concerning how they believe they can serve most effectively. Now, yes, give them counsel. You can gently encourage. You can even vigorously prod. Think of 
the story of when John Calvin was in Geneva and wanted to leave, and William Farrell, Guillaume Farrell, uh, threatened the curse of God from heaven upon him if he left the work that he had there right in front of him. Basically, he was saying, there's an effective door open for you here. Don't go looking for other doors. He was vigorously prodding Calvin to stay in Geneva at that point. You can gently encourage, you can even vigorously prod, but you can't force. The rest of verse 12, but he, talking of Apollos, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time, however he will come when he has a convenient time. I imagine Apollos was also prioritizing the ministry that was right in front of him. He was seeing just like, Paul, look, there's a great and effective door open for me right here. It'd be silly of me to leave. God is blessing this ministry right here. I would hate to leave it right now. So we see here several lessons. Make careful plans for the work of Christ's kingdom. It's wise to do that. But be flexible to adjust those plans because you are not omniscient and God is. You might plan your way, but the Lord will order your footsteps. Be willing to adjust your plans to best fit the circumstances that are changing before you. Prioritize what seems to be working the most effectively for Christ's kingdom. Don't try to do everything yourself. Don't expect one or a few within the church to do all the work of the church. See that the work is delegated to trustworthy and qualified individuals and respect those who labor for the kingdom. Help identify the gifts of your fellow Christians. Encourage them to use those gifts effectively in Christ's service. And then finally, respect their decisions as to how they believe they can serve most effectively. And these are great lessons to take to heart. Let's pray. Lord, help us indeed to make wise plans, but also to accept when you are calling for us to change them. Grant that we might wisely prioritize what will be the most effective for the work of your kingdom. Grant us many co-laborers for that work. Grant that we might be respectful of their efforts. Help us to identify one another's gifts, to encourage their use in the service of God, respecting others even as they deem how best they can serve you. For we pray these things in the name of the one who governs all in the church, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.